Well, the Tastod family has recently had an anniversary. It was the 11th anniversary of our arrival here in New Zealand. And we got here just in time for the big storm and floods of 2004, which for the purposes of first impressions probably wasn't ideal. And one of the first things that we noticed about New Zealand, apart from the howling wind and rain, was the quality of the light. Now, you probably don't give it a second thought, but somehow the sun is different here to back there in Africa. The colour of everything that you see is its a little bit different. And I'd describe the, the general impression of things being softer and greener here, while everything back there is generally a more golden glow. And of course there's a physical explanation for this having to do with the angle of dangle of the sun's rays, but that has no interest for us today. Instead, I want us to explore this matter of light's quality. What is light like in the context of God? What does his light look like? What does it do and how ought it to be reflected in our own lives? In chapter 5 so far, we've learned quite a lot about what those who profess Jesus as Lord should not be doing. And today we'll be looking at some more things that we should be doing. So, let's read our passage then. I'm going to start from the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Do you like trees? Do you like trees? I do. As a child, I climbed them and I fell out of a few as well. And later in life, I've enjoyed a quiet snooze in their shade. I've used them to lift engines out of cars and yes, I've crashed into a few too. I've taken pictures of them. I'm fascinated by their shapes and colours. Have you ever looked at something like a tree and wondered how it is that something so chaotic could be so beautiful when in the human world to make something look nice we want it all straight and sharp corners and things trees are good in many ways it is true but despite all of that when it comes to preserving life they are completely useless unless they bear fruit you see a tree can be as big and as shady as you like but when you are starving at its base It'll just be a cool place to die. The fruit is what preserves the tree's own life as well as the lives of others. And isn't that a good illustration for the life of a Christian too? We are encouraged here to walk as children of light, 
to show and bear its useful illuminating fruit, which are goodness and righteousness and truth. And that fruit will be delicious and nourishing, not just for us, but for all those who are around us as well. So, what does that look like? Well, to start off with, it's very natural and normal. Although it's not obvious in the English translation, there is some language here in verse 9 which ought to make us think about how these fruit are seen in, in us. The Greek word for fruit has the sense of what a plant or an animal produces naturally. There's been no forcing or reshaping or pretense here. There's no genetic modification or artificial colorings either. No one should be gritting their teeth daily so as to be pretending to be good. No. Our goodness flows normally and naturally from the goodness that has been put inside us by God at the moment that we chose to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's true that our flesh will always be at war with that store of goodness. We will still want to be greedy and selfish and thoughtless. But what should be exposed when we choose to push those things aside will be the pure golden goodness and righteousness that God has put there in all of his children. It's true. It's always there. And it's in every person who lives in and through Christ. In this we can find great encouragement in hard times. Do you find yourself wondering at times that you've really been saved? Do you? Maybe there's some recurring sin that you're struggling with or you know, you just can't knuckle down to your quiet times. I feel like that sometimes. These daily difficulties have a way of wearing us down so that we might begin to doubt that God would want to have anything to do with us at all. We feel far from him and we feel like a failure. And in those moments, it's hard to believe that we are saved at all. But that's just what Satan wants. He wants us to give up and turn away. But remember that Satan is the father of lies. Don't listen to that discouraging voice. Stop. Be still and be quiet. Seek your heart. Is what you find there a natural desire for God's goodness and righteousness and the truth? Are you deeply troubled that you missed the standard? Yes then be encouraged because you found the truth. These things would not be weighing so heavily on your mind if you were not a child of God. And this is never to say, though, that we should take that precious store for granted and carry on in sin. Repentance is always the right response to sin. But we should give thanks, for truly we would be completely and utterly lost without God's innermost treasure. We would have no hope at all. It is a wonderful and undeserved gift that we should treat with the utmost care and respect. So, set it as your anchor. Live by it. Shine from it for the glory of God. What then is this light that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to speak of here? Is it a little glow? Should good Christians need to wear a bag on their head in the dark cinema? Of course not. We're talking about a spiritual light. In fact, 
the most spiritual light, since, depending on your translation, you might find that instead of the word spirit, as used here in the King James, you will find the word light. For example, the Amplified reads, for the fruit, the effect or the product of the light or the spirit consists in every form of kindly goodness, uprightness of heart and trueness of life. In fact, equating spiritual light and the Holy Spirit isn't inconsistent at all. If you think about Galatians 5, which I hope we all know well by now, and it lists the fruit of the Spirit in much the same way as here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. I think this is an important concept to get a hold of. The first sermon that I ever preached was on luck. We will often say, oh, that was lucky, and think nothing of it. But what are we actually saying? We, we are saying that some unidentified and random force called luck, which is apparently as powerful as God, has come down on our side this time. Yay, I'm so lucky, I've won Powerball. Ekatahuna Foursquare is the luckiest lotto store in the universe. Everyone does it. I find myself doing it. But what we are really doing is serious because we are denying the sovereignty of God. And we shouldn't be doing that. I find it very curious too that non-believers are quite happy with this idea of an intangible and random and unpredictable yet very powerful force called luck. Yet they will heap scorn on God. It's just not consistent, is it? But what is true here is that God is sovereign. There are no other forces at play. He wills, he controls it all, and it will certainly come to pass. And similarly, this is why we cannot understand the goodness and righteousness and truth spoken of here, like our friend Luck, as being some kind of nice force that sort of floats around and sometimes affects us and sometimes not. Who defines these attributes but God? God alone is perfectly and consistently good. God alone is perfectly and consistently righteous. And God alone defines what is and is not true. It should not surprise us then that the light that produces these things in us should be the Holy Spirit of God. And He is fully God. So what we are called to shine into the world then is not some half-baked human version of these godly attributes or some third unknown force, but it is the real deal. A high and lofty standard, yes, but not one that we are left on our own to attain. We do have real God indwelling in us to help. The Holy Spirit who will not fail. And so we should be encouraged in our daily walk because the fact is that we are never far from God. In fact... He is right there inside us at all times. So let's go on now to talk more specifically about goodness, righteousness and truth. If we're going to be showing them as an example to others, then I think we had better be sure to know what they are. As humans, we have some ideas about what is good and what is not. Mother Teresa is good. But ISIS, on the other hand, is definitely not. We will often hear it said that so-and-so is a good person, or when someone is asked how they expect to get to heaven, a common response is that entry will be gained because they are a good person. 
The trouble with these pictures is that they rest on a fundamental misunderstanding about what goodness is from God's perspective. And that's pretty important because it is always him who decides one way or the other what goodness is, not us. And actually without God, it is impossible even to be good. In Luke 18 we find this exchange between Jesus and a certain ruler. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Who is good? No one but God. So that excludes all of us, by the way. And it explains why we need to be children of God before we can radiate any goodness at all to the world around us. And what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, simple it means all of those who have repented of their sins and accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour for the rest of their lives. Only these people are seen as good by God, and then only because of Jesus. No Jesus, no good, no good, no heaven. Ever. It makes you think, doesn't it? What does this message about good mean to you today? So now we know both who is good and what it means to be a child of God. We have spoken about the human view of goodness But what about God's goodness? What does that describe? Well, Wayne Grudem defines God's goodness as follows. He says, The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. There are two principal parts to this. Firstly, God is the final standard of good. The goodness buck stops firmly on his desk. Now, you might remember some time ago that I used two rules as part of an illustration, and they're appropriate again today, so I'm just going to recycle them. Rule one, the coach is always right. Rule two, in the unlikely event of the coach being wrong, refer again to rule one. So, suitably amended for this text, they read thus. Rule one, God is always right. Rule two, God is always right. There is never, ever any possibility of God not being good. And this is often a concept we will struggle with when we think about things like those beasts of Isis are doing. How can an infallibly good God allow such evil on his watch? I'm very sorry, but I don't have a pat answer for that question. But I do understand a few things that helps me. Firstly, I must appreciate there is this huge step between me and God in terms of ability. There's just no way that I can appreciate the big picture of him looking down on the globe and and fathoming those fantastically complex interrelations between billions of people in the way that God does. So I have to accept 
that I can't ever understand why God does what he does. Secondly, I cannot bear to contemplate the possibility of a God who is not always good because that would be a terrifying possibility. An all-powerful being who purposefully might want to hurt me. That would be very frightening. And thirdly, this would definitely be at odds with what we read about God in Scripture because Scripture tells us that God is good. Now you might say that for me to argue that God is good because I say he has to be good, it's just silly. How can any human define what God ought to be? Well, this is just exactly the argument of many who reject him, isn't it? I won't believe in God because he doesn't fit into my ideal of what he should look like. And in fact, that's exactly what Stephen Fry has just done recently, if you've heard any of the press coverage about that. Friends, we need a bigger God than we can imagine. Always. Because the problems that we face individually and especially collectively are bigger than we can possibly manage. So, aside from what I've just said about ability and intent, how do I know that God is always a standard of good? And I can tell that by observation. I can see God's goodness in a mother's love for her children. I see God's goodness when I stand on the beach at sunset and I look out at the sea. I can see God's goodness when I stand in a high place and the world is spread around me. And I can see God's goodness in the amazing details on a tiny butterfly's wing. Nothing man has ever made or done is as good as God. The second part of this definition is that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Okay. Approval by whom? It isn't unreasonable to say that anything that is truly good should be worthy of approval by us. However, it would clearly be wrong to say that God needs human approval in any shape or form in order to be considered good. So whose approval is worthy then? The short answer is that only God's own approval is good enough. If we were talking this way about humans who are flawed by sin and who constantly rationalise things to suit themselves, then this would be a very scary answer to the old question of who would watch the watchers. But since we are talking about God who is perfectly righteous and holy, then we can be most certain indeed that anything that is worthy of his approval is very good indeed. He is able to watch himself. The inclusion of righteousness and holiness as concepts and the understanding of what goodness is is very helpful in assisting us to see what standards our own actions should aspire to so as to be practising the goodness that a child of God is supposed to display. And this brings me to another definition. This is the definition of goodness in man. Goodness in man is not a mere passive quality, but the deliberate preference of right to wrong, the firm and persistent resistance of all moral evil, and the choosing and following of all moral good. I'd say this is a very penetrating definition. Do you see that it says that goodness is not merely passive? 
Although God has certainly set the ability to do good within us, it won't find its way out without our working it out. And this is part of the work of sanctification, the moment-by-moment engagement with the Holy Spirit that makes us more and more like Jesus every day in nature and in deed. And this includes something of a passive element because we must rely on God to sanctify us. We cannot do that work on our own. But the fact remains that we must get up and do it with him. And this is perfectly illustrated by Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here Paul acknowledges that it is by the Spirit that we can put the deeds of the body to death, but he also says that we must do it. The Spirit and man working together for God's glory. And what is that work? Well, our definition has three suggestions. Firstly, the deliberate preference of right to wrong. Secondly, the firm and persistent resistance of all moral evil. And lastly, the choosing and following of all moral good. Well, I can see three key phrases here. Deliberate preference, firm and persistent, and choosing and following. These reinforce the necessity for the active nature of goodness. In any given circumstance, we always have a choice of what to do as guided, firstly by Scripture and secondly by our consciences. We do know right from wrong. However, Sometimes it isn't a very appealing option to do either of these things. Sometimes instead we choose to do nothing. The problem is that in the bigger picture it isn't actually nothing. I'm sure that we are all familiar with the saying, the only thing needed for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. One definition of evil is that it is the absence of good. So we might think that letting a wrong thing go by is harmless. And perhaps more importantly, it might keep us out of an embarrassing situation. But only that second part is true. If we do not choose to act, then evil triumphs. It rushes in to fill that space that we have created by doing nothing. Imagine that you are the little Dutch boy at the proverbial dike. You can see the sea beginning to seep through that hole. You could run away and leave it to the somebody else's problem force field. You could shout that something ought to be done. But nothing will be as timely or effective as sticking your finger in the hole. Goodness is a great deal more than merely a fluffy and pleasant moral quality. Having the potential to do good, but never doing it, is pointless and irrelevant. Goodness in action, however, is something much more profound. The word goodness on a page, to me, suspiciously looks like godness. If we are to be truly good, then we must turn our faces towards God, who is the standard of all goodness, away from the world, and then do what we know we ought to do. So, that's goodness dealt with, I'd say, fairly comprehensively. And now we can move on to righteousness and truth. So, we shouldn't be at this now for more than another hour, I'd say. 
Once again, we will start by thinking about what righteousness means in human terms. And the way that I've seen it used most frequently is not encouraging because it is used to imply a kind of a a do-good, holier-than-thou attitude. Don't come over all holy and righteous on me. This attitude towards the word implies that if we all do the wrong thing for long enough, well, then it becomes right and acceptable. And actually, that's not far off the dictionary definition, which is behaving in accordance with accepted standards of morality, uprightness or justice. In theory, doing the right thing. I say in theory because there is a big problem with that accepted standard part of the definition. Since in human terms, that is a a flimsy and a shifting line. For example, acceptable standards in a mongrel mob headquarters are not going to be quite the same as they are inside this church, are they? Then there is the matter of acceptable standards always being under pressure to change. Most of the time, it must be said, not for the better. So, for us here on earth, righteousness is kind of a wishy-washy thing depending on the time and place that you live in. And this is not what Paul is talking about here at all. In spreading the light of God's righteousness around, we're not going to be doing what we think is right. The Greek word that is used here is derived from a word that means straightness. Doing doing goodness and righteousness isn't a wobbly or curving line. We must be doing what is factually right. And the one who has the final say on that is God. So I refer again to my learned friend Mr. Grudem. He defines righteousness as the doctrine that God always acts in accordance with what is right and that he is himself the final standard of what is right. Well, that's not very different from our definition of goodness, is it? Once again, we see God's absolute and utter consistency in behavior, and the fact that he defines what is right and what is not. In looking for proof texts on this matter, we have to get around the idea that while English separates these two words, righteousness and justice, Actually, in Hebrew and Greek, there is no such division. So, in Deuteronomy 32.4, we read, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So, although there's two words there, righteousness and justice, we're talking about the same thing, not some other character attitude. And of course there are many other texts that inform us the same way. Speaking of God, Moses says, all his ways of justice are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. Same words. Abraham successfully appeals to God's own character of righteousness when he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so on and so on. We have been called here in Ephesians to be earthly models of God. In his righteousness, as with all his other attributes, God's character is never separate from or inconsistent with his actions. And so, since he is righteousness, and he is righteous in action, it is necessary that he treat people according to what they deserve. 
So God must always, always punish sin. Because it doesn't deserve reward. It is wrong and the only thing it deserves is punishment. But the ultimate expression of this is in Jesus' gracious death on the cross. Because humans only deserved appropriate punishment for their sin. And that was a debt that we could only pay by death and hell. Yet God made us and loved us and wanted to reconcile us to him. And so his righteousness was fulfilled by the substitution of Jesus' death in place of ours. I can never understand that. What a wonderful God that we serve. There is though, in this space, a million dollar question. It's all very well to understand that God is righteousness. But what does that mean for me? What is actually right? What ought to happen and what ought to be? Well, the answer is that whatever conforms to God's moral character is right. But why is that so right? It is right because it conforms to his moral character. If indeed God is the final standard of righteousness, then there can be no other standard outside God by which we measure righteousness or justice. He himself is the final standard. I'd say that this is a big problem for many people today because our society sets great store on individual freedom and rights. However, Christians must only rely on Scripture for truth and when Scripture confronts the question of whether God himself is righteous or not, the ultimate answer is tough. The coach is always right. No rule too. And that we as God's creatures have no right to say that God is unrighteous or unjust. And there's a very good example of this in the book of Job, where Job gets a very well-deserved ear bashing in chapters 38 to 40, because he is dead to question God. So how will I know what conforms to God's moral character? How will I know? Any ideas? Read the book. Read the book. My answer will never change. Pick up your Bible and read it. As with goodness, we should have cause for thanksgiving and gratitude when we see the importance of God being both righteous and omnipotent. If he were perfectly righteous without power to carry out that righteousness, he would not be worthy of worship and we would have no guarantee that justice would ultimately prevail in the universe. It will. Praise God, evil will be defeated. On the other hand, if he were a God of unlimited power yet without righteousness in his character, how unthinkably horrible the universe would be. There would be unrighteousness at the centre of everything. And there would be nothing that anyone could do to change it. Existence would become subject to random and unpredictable acts by God and we would be driven to the most utter despair. And so we ought to 
continually thank and praise God for who he is, that all his ways are justice, that he is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, and that he is just and right. Well, this brings us to our last topic, which is truth. As children of the light, we are to show the fruit of goodness, righteousness and truth. And here's just a few things scripture tells us about it. God is a God of truth. Christ is truth. He was full of truth and he spoke it. The Holy Spirit is its spirit and so the spirit guides us into all truth. What we read in our Bibles, the word of God is truth and God regards those who speak it and who live it with favour. Unfortunately, in a human sense, we have pretty much lost the concept of truth as a fixed and unalterable idea. And this may have a little bit to do with our love of manipulating the truth to suit ourselves. Although it's been around for a very long time, one of the commonest modern Western philosophies is a thing called moral relativism. (laughs) What's that? Well, it can be any one of several philosophical positions that are concerned with the differences in moral judgments across different people and cultures. So what it's saying is that through normal differences in culture and traditions and customs and practices, people disagree about what is moral and so on because nobody is really wrong or right. So we ought to tolerate the behavior of others even when we disagree about the morality of it. It doesn't seem too unreasonable to me. You know, live and... Let live and all that sort of stuff. thing is, how far should we take that? You know, if for example, another culture considers eating rats as normal, should we see that as okay? Yeah, I can't see why not. I don't like the idea, but... Well, how about if they believe ritual human sacrifice is normal? What would, you, what would we think about that? Well, whatever we think, and whatever we, we say about it, there's just going to be along the lines of moral relativism, unless we can fix our standard to a moral absolute, a post that doesn't move. The world says that there isn't one, but Christians say that God is the absolute standard of truth. And this is expressed in the definition of God's truthfulness. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. The first part of this definition indicates that the God revealed in Scripture is the true or real God and that all other so-called gods are in fact just Idols, they're just things that have been made by humans. And one example of this can be found in Jeremiah 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. So what? 
What does it mean to be the true God? I'm going to have to ask you to listen carefully now towards the end of a fairly long sermon because (laughs) really I'm struggling to explain this. What does it mean to be the true God? Well, it means that God is what he ought to look like. A being who is infinitely perfect in power, in wisdom, in goodness, in lordship over space and time and so forth. Okay, so whose idea of perfection is that? Well, if we hold to the idea of there being a creator and then us being created, then we have to set aside any notion that God ought to look like what we think he ought to look like. We are mere creatures. We cannot define what God must be like. So we have to say that it is God himself who has the only perfect idea of what the true God should be like. And he himself is the true God, because in his being and character he perfectly conforms to his own idea of what the true God should be. It follows from the above that what God knows, and he knows everything, then must be truth. He is never mistaken in his perception or understanding. Therefore the standard of true knowledge must be conformity to God's knowledge. If we think the same thing that God thinks about anything in the universe, well then we are thinking truthfully about it. How will we know what God is thinking? Well, we can ask him. That's prayer. And we can see specifically what he thinks about pretty much anything through the study of Scripture. Read the book. A critical fact emerges from this idea. Moral relativism is a waste of time for us as Christians. Since if God is the one true God and what he knows is true, then we always have an absolute standard to compare our actions to. Don't be seduced into the world's wobbly way of thinking. We do know right from wrong. And we ought to speak it and we ought to do it. And this is what it means to shine the light of truth in everyday life. And this is what verse 10 is all about. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. I'm not going to say a great deal about this verse because actually it's quite obvious what it means. But the key part here is this phrase, finding out. In the original Greek, it was a word that was used to describe the process of checking a metal's purity, by burning it. Let's see what burns off. (coughs) That is a very robust and active way of testing a thing, I would say, setting it on fire. So God is very confident about his product. He says, test my goodness, test my righteousness, test my truth and see if they are real and they are worthy. But you can't do this sitting on your backside. Knowing about them is not good enough. You need to reach and stretch and search for them. Find them out. Get into the corners and see what is in there. And as you test them out, you too will be tested and purified. 
I'll finish suddenly now, although not without a parting thought. After working through this passage, it occurs to me that the problem the world has with Christianity, it isn't usually what we say. The real issue lies with the gap between what we say and what we do. If we all lived so as to shine out God's goodness and God's righteousness and God's truth, as we have read today, then I'm sure that they would have a great deal less difficulty with Christianity and our churches would be much fuller. So, how brightly do you and I shine? That is a question we should be asking of ourselves every moment of every day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenge that we have heard today. I pray that it wouldn't disappear with the end of the service, but it would remain in our hearts and that we would be constantly thinking about it in the days and weeks to come. But most importantly, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, we wouldn't just think about these things, we would do them. We ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.